Newtonian determinism says that the universe is a clock, a gigantic clock that's wound up at the beginning of time, and it's been ticking ever since according to Newton's laws. It is hard to imagine what Chicago's downtown would look like without the loop and the elevated train tracks that define it. Hi, welcome to Chicago Union Station. So, what you're going to eat 10 years from now, on January 1st, has already been fixed. It is hard to imagine what Chicago's downtown would look like without the loop. Waiter, there's a fly in my soup. Could you do something about it? Perhaps something hot to drink. Should you like that? Yes, please. But it is dull, son of Adam, to drink without eating. What would you like to eat best in all the world? Turkish delight. Hi, welcome to the Train Rush, your overscripted, under-rehearsed joke of train game podcasts, brought to you by Cray Taylor and Joe Reese. Hi, Joe. How you doing, bud? I'm okay. Is this the bit where we pretend that we haven't spoken to each other in two weeks? Yeah, that's the one. It's the one where we put the time machine in the middle. I can tell you about my crappy day today, if you like. That'd be good, wouldn't it? I managed to survive a trip into Reading. Didn't I compare that once to um, Chicago? Yeah, it was ages ago, though, Joe. I don't know how you remembered that. <laughs> but, you know, it was great walking around town, watching people failing to wear masks properly. I've got this uh, great fat controller mask and top hat whenever I go to Reading. Nice. It obscures my face so no one knows I've gone to Reading. Anyway, what are we supposed to be talking about tonight? I hope you've been drinking, Joe. I've been drinking. I'm drinking rum to soften the pain of what we're about to discuss. I've been drinking a really nice ginger and lemon grass. What do you call that? It's like a squash, but it's posher. Cordial. Cordial, yeah, yeah. But I've had it with hot water. Cordial, unlike our conversation, hey, Joe? Every time. Every time. Every time. So it's an odd one because we played games before and have decided after doing a little bit of preliminary research not to talk about it. Just because we figured that maybe what we had to say wasn't particularly interesting, maybe there was just wasn't enough in the game to discuss. Sometimes we just thought there's something else more exciting we would rather spend the time doing in terms of coverage. Decided to break the rule for this one purely on the basis that the spec sheet, if you will, claims to offer some things that I actually find quite exciting. And irrespective of where we land at the end of this, I still think it's a worthy addition to the Parthenon of Cube Rail games in terms of what it sets out to achieve. There's my conclusion to start again, as per usual. <laughs> it's alright, we'll chop it out and put it in at the end with the time machine. Let's work back around. So today, we are here to discuss... Us? Joe? Oh, what are we here? This is the bit where I smoothly bring you in, Joseph. We are here to discuss Travis Hill's Union Station. That's the Union Station in Chicago, not the Union Station in Arizona, Arkansas, Los Angeles, Danbury, New Haven, Jacksonville, Tampa, Albany, Atlanta, Gary, none of those. The Chicago one. Right, the Chicago one. Lovely. We can bring up pizza if you like. Or Danish pastries. But let's not because that would be boring. So, a union station is where multiple train companies share the same tracks and facilities, more commonly known as a joint station in Europe, because we're a bunch of hippies. But what is this union station? It is a cube rail game for three to five players and runs on the box circa an hour. All those things so far have been reasonably reliable. 
it does in fact play three players and five players and runs in approximately an hour. What are the key selling points, Joe? Well, the most notable one is that you can not only buy shares, but sell them as well. It is a monetary transaction that affects the market value of the shares. Have you ever heard of that in a Q-Brails game? That's why I'm here, Joe. It's why I'm here. I suppose there is Baltimore and Ohio too, but that's a game that's larger in scope. Something a little bit different. Well, I tell you what, Joe, I will bet the cost of this game that this is the only one that's available for free. Yeah, that's true. There's currently a print-and-play version, but speaking of sales, it will be professionally published by New Mill Industries and will be launched on Kickstarter in October 2021. I think we could talk to the macro level, right? It's kind of in the Irish Gage family of Q-Brow games. You could even say Chicago Express, really, where on your turn you take a single action, next player can take a different single action, or the same, whatever. But the point being is, it's an interweave of the players all taking single actions. And those actions don't deplete, there isn't a limit on those. Indeed, so it's kind of more like Irish Gage in that sense than Chicago Express. The actions will be either buying stock, which will cause a change in the stock value of the company concerned, They'll be selling stock, which will lower the value of the stock company concerned, or they'll be laying track, laying track, developing the value of the company they choose to lay the track for. Should we talk through how the shares come out first? Let's start with that. It's the first thing in terms of flow. Did you want to discuss that initial auction then? No, 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 no. The auction's fine. Anybody who's played a cube rail game ever will understand how that opening auction works. There's nothing to unpack there. Well, there is... But it's in the second half of the podcast. So we have our offer deck, which comprises of all the company shares left over from the initial auction, shuffled and placed face down, all except one, which will be the next share that will enter the conveyor belt of dreams. This is a row of three slots in which shares will slide into from the top of the deck if there's ever an empty space in the market. The shares are bought at market price, and if you buy a share sitting in the first slot, it will bump up the company market value by one, in the second slot by two, and the third slot by three bumps for that company on the stock market. I thought he was going to bump it up by six, Joe. No, one, two, three. It's very simple, Craig. Don't confuse things. So ideally, you want to be buying stock in which you'll get the biggest bump in value. But I don't think the decisions are always that clear cut because you've got the different companies you're going to be choosing from which are randomly pouring out of the deck and you're thinking about who else holds these shares you're also thinking about deck lock and by that concept i mean if you currently have a share and it's not diluted you are the only holder of that company you're getting 100 payout and there's currently nothing visible in the market of shares if you buy a share there's a possibility you're going to unlock one of your shares For me, that was a consideration when playing this. Yes, like the cards in Concordia, the only way those shares are moving along this trade row is by player purchase. There's no mechanism like in Through the Ages, where the end of the conveyor belt is discarded. So there's an onus on the players to control the movement of the share shop and consequently the dilution of player income too. Sure. While it does inject an element of the unknown, there is some degree of control, like waiting for the company to get down to the magic plus three slot and buying it then, you probably want to do your best to hold on to 100% of the dividends, don't you? But to help move up your stock value to get those dividends, then maybe you do want to allow that stock to be bought, but preferably by yourself. Wah, wah, wah. Assumed knowledge alert, Joe. Assumed knowledge. 
What do you mean moving up the stock value creates dividends? If you're building across the map, there are different ways to bump up your value. When you're buying your shares, it will bump up your value. Now, at different points on the stock market, there are red squares. Now, if the company passes onto or through the red squares, then a dividend will be paid, divided between everyone who owns shares in the company. Rounded up as well, so the magic money comes in from the vending machine payouts, I guess. Yeah, I'm not sure how you thematically justify that. People buy peanuts, it's obvious. You know, I've looked at the preview of the new stock market artwork, and instead of red squares, they are actually orange circles, which I guess are a bit like peanuts. Anyway, when you're playing this game, one of the considerations is buying a share in a company to move the stock value forward and for a dividend to be paid out. Makes total sense. It does. I think that could be an interesting widget. We'll come back to that. Yeah. I think you're going to find a theme here. We're going to be coming back to a lot. You can build for any company that you own a share, and you can build two cubes at a time. The important thing here is you must lay two cubes, if possible. So there's no doing a merry little dance, no laying one cube for brinksmanship purposes or whatever. We have the map. We have Chicago right in the middle of the map. You can build anywhere sprawling out from Chicago, as long as it's a contiguous line of cubes. But you can jump from one side of Chicago to the next. I think that's probably down to the Chicago Loop, I suppose. Although you can't jump into the the lake there. What's the lake called, Craig? Lake Erie, isn't it? I don't think it is. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Wait, we, we hired Norm to do that for us now. Norm, uh, what's the name of the lake there? If you've checked out our social media posts, you'll realise that we've hired a new member of staff for the train shed. Hired? That seems like a very big commitment. Well, we, we don't actually pay him. So Norm here is to correct any historical inaccuracies or geographical um, inconsistencies which we're often um, plagued by. And Norm is busy in the background somewhere, pressing buttons and... Are you going to say anything, Norm, on, on mic? Yeah, I'm, 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 it's, it's awesome. Are you happy with all my levels? Am I coming through okay? What's the name of the lake? I said this to Joe, like, um, when I was first getting to 18xx, the train rush was the only 18xx podcast. So after I played 46... Um, yeah, 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 no one's interested in this, Norm. I'm sorry? Why does everything have to be so difficult? Um, yeah, I, I can't think of what, what... What is the... It's just gone out of my head, I... Um, Lake. It's Lake Michigan. Lake Michigan. Thanks, Craig. Lake Michigan. You cannot lay a cube in Lake Michigan. In Lake Michigan. <laughs> yep, that's how you pronounce it. Yeah. Across the map, we have dotted cities. And when you lay your cube into one of those cities, then the revenue increases for that company by two. We also have larger cities. There are one, two, three, four, five metropolises on the board. You're counting live on air. Is this what we're calling entertainment these days at the train rush? It adds to the excitement, doesn't it? And the... The engagement. The anticipation. Yeah, the listeners just didn't know where you were going to stop. No, they, they didn't. Oh, is he going oh, to go to double digits this time? Carry on, Joe. Apologies. There are five metropolises on the board. Sorry, Joe. It's metropoli. Is it? It could be. It could be. No. Carry on. If you lay 
your cube in there, you get a plus three bump to your railroad value. That's quite nice. Now, there are also destination cities. So for each company in the game, there is a plus five bump on the stock market value. The only thing you forgot to mention is once you reach your destination, you may no longer lay track. It's got where it wants to go. Sure. Interesting kind of vibe here. 12 cubes isn't a lot of cubes versus the size of the map. One of the questions you have when you're building is about the time of connecting to your destination city, if other companies allow you to get to your destination city. Do you want to race straight there to quickly get that bump up, or do you want to make the routes around the uh, smaller towns increasing your revenue to its maximum potential? Well, do you want the honest answer? Yeah, go for it, Craig. What do you think? No, you absolutely want to go around the place picking up as many things as possible. You want to chase the density of towns. You are going to have to think about which revenue centres you're choosing to build into. And if you do get cut off from being able to build somewhere, because the classic rule of only two different cubes can coexist in a hex applies here, if you do get cut off, it can be... I don't want to say terminal, but it will significantly reduce your potential revenue. Do you think it's a significant reduction if we're looking at, let's say, heading towards the destination city, it's plus five. But if you don't make it that way, you go to another city, it's plus three. It's just when you find yourself in a situation where you've wasted a proportion of 12 cubes on a big map... I guess the emotional resonance of being blocked is probably bigger than the actual practical impact. I suppose reaching your destination city could be a difference between reaching an extra dividend payout or not, as every nudge forward on the stock market will benefit the shareholders, but you'll want to maximise your revenue first. So yes, the answer is chase the density of towns. But any mistake in route building, we'd both argue, I think, will only really occur when you're new and fresh-faced and only in your first game or two. Leap forward after a few games and these wasted cubes are less likely to happen. But we'll come back to planning your routes. Alternatively, listeners can press the fast-forward button at any time they wish. Right. Selling stock. This is the bit that excites me, Joe. We should talk about selling stock and how that works. We've front-loaded the whole of this discussion with you can sell stock. And then ignored it. Yeah, well... As you do. But saving the best for last, possibly. So, when you sell stock, you have to sell every single certificate in that company. You have to wash yourself clean of the horrible red Pittsburgh company, or the orange, or the green, or whatever. It's all of it, and it goes in the bin. No one can buy that stock again. It's out of the game. And the value of that company will drop down one line on the stock market, and you'll get the initial stock value for each of those shares. Per tranche depreciation as opposed to per share depreciation. Yep. And that typically, going down a row, represents losing $4 in value? 26 to 20. It's it's actually 6. It's yeah, 6. Yeah. yeah, 6. Apologies. I'm the man with the numbers, Craig. You got that from when I counted to 5. I could count to 6 too. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I can't do <laughs> subtraction, clearly. And the stock market is completely linear. There are no leaps in stock value. There's no ramping at the end. So I've got some questions on this, Joe. What happens to the remaining shares in terms of the share dilution, Joe? Well, they are now more concentrated. So if, let's say, Jane is holding three of orange and you are holding two, then you're getting rid of two and she was holding three-fifths. <laughs> but now she holds three-thirds, which is 100%. Wow. And who's Jane, Joe? Jane is my good cube rail Cuba. I believe that's a professional Cuba realist is a Cuba. I'm um, making it popular right here, right now. Cuba Gooding Jr. is a famous 
Cuba, I believe. I'll stop now. I'll stop. <laughs> right. Oh my God. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh. This is too late. <laughs> what are we doing? What are we saying? I don't know. <laughs> Oh dear, it's a midnight special, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> right, so, okay, that sounds exciting, right? I guess like the principle of being able to ping other people's stocks, a fluctuation in dilution sounds like something that you'd want to keep track of. Yeah, I think the potential ideas here are interesting because it's trying to replicate stock trashing and the financial side of train games, whereas a lot of the Cubrail games are more towards the kind of engineering and growing your company because once you bought a company... Mm. I say growing your company, that doesn't hold true through all the games where you can lay tragic track. Let's talk about that. Can you lay tragic track in this game? No. I suppose we can address tragic track later in the second half of the podcast. Indeed. You'll know it's the second half of the podcast when you hear this chime. At that point, please press stop and eject. Insert your cassette into the player on side B. And press play again. And press play again. And press play again. And press play again. And I think that's it. That's everything you need to know about the Union Station. We haven't mentioned Chicago Union Station. Wait a minute. We've missed one big thing about this game. Chicago Union Station. The name of the game is Union Station after Chicago Union Station. Craig, do some talking about Chicago Union Station. Essentially, when every company has had one extra share purchased, we trigger a $10 dividend per company. That's Union Station paying its rich spoils to the owners of Union Station. When every company has sold two shares, then we'll trigger a $15 payout. And when every company has sold three shares, we will trigger a $20 payout. I don't know why I get the vestigial limb of this game and you get all the cool stuff, Joe, but fine. I get Chicago Union Station Company. It ties the theme in. I can tie it in with a big leap of imagination. I like to call these the Odessa Steps. Do you know why I like to call them the Odessa Steps, Craig? No, because I didn't go to a posh school like you, Joe. <laughs> well, in the film Battleship Potemkin, there is a very famous scene where the Cossacks are charging in with their rifles and there's a crowd of unarmed civilians and they're women and children and they're all fleeing and getting shot. And there's a really famous scene, you must know it, Craig, where the pram starts rolling down the steps and there's a baby in the pram and it's really exciting. Old black and white film. Now, in the Untouchables. Have you seen The Untouchables? I have seen that. That is more my speed, Joe. There's a scene in that in which there's a pastiche of the Odessa Steps scene from Battleship Potemkin in which gangsters and guns and whatever and Pram goes rolling down the steps. Do you know where those steps are? Union Station. They are in Chicago Union Station. But getting back to the game, it's just a few steps on a little tracker. <laughs> my word! Well, your company, your baby, is falling down those steps and and it's making money somehow. I don't know. Your metaphor was more entertaining than the game component, just to be clear. I have to say this is unlike that famous scene and how culturally important it is to all of cinema. This part of the game in which the whole game is named around is... It's just, it's nothing. The whole time you're thinking, I'm moving these trackers and there isn't rifles going off. There aren't 
people screaming. It's just peanuts. I think that vestigial limb statement I made earlier actually could be blown out a bit more in so much as this feels like something that maybe was more core to design or something that wanted to be in there or like an inspiration if you will but then everything else swiftly overtook it in terms of providing gameplay dynamics. It's also so programmatic as well, right? Because that first payout doesn't trigger until every company has sold at least one extra share. So you know what the per share payout is going to be. So the first payout is going to be $5 per share or less. There's no kind of mystery of that bumping up and exploding and making a difference. I guess there's a chance there's a difference between affording another share, I suppose. And maybe there could be an element of timing involved, buying a share to trigger a dividend in your favour, maybe. You buy a share that you might otherwise not buy because it's the one that triggers the next union station payout and you happen to be sitting on a decent majority of something or you're at risk of dilution at the next player's actions but I never really saw it in Vivo. Yeah, never felt like it played an instrumental part of any victory in the games I played. On the surface it looks like a mechanism that could have some potential in accelerating the game as union station becomes more and more lucrative the dividends pump out more and more cash accelerating the purchase of railroad shares, creating the sense of a busy stock market environment. Can I just make an observation as to why I don't think it was very effective, why we didn't see it? Three shares in the offer row isn't that many shares. None of it was relevant for the next Union Station payout anyway. It's all well and good saying, oh well I'll buy a share I wouldn't normally buy and then I'll sell it afterwards because it's done its job, but it's got to be on that offer row and there's going to be a consistent theme underpinning my reservations here. That deck dictates your options so heavily in almost every mechanism bar the lane of track. A gigantic clock that's wound up at the beginning of time and it's been ticking ever since according to Newton's laws of motion. Has already been fixed. Let's talk about that deck. You know the composition of the deck and how many shares for each company. Potentially at the very beginning of the game you could estimate the value of a share and how diluted the payouts may become. Unfortunately, the game is determined by the set order of the shares and the destiny of the railway companies is already set in stone at the very beginning of the game in your random shuffle. The defensibility of your dilution is essentially decided by the game setup. So you can just arbitrarily end up with a company that its first five or six payouts are 100% to you and nobody can do anything about it. And you haven't earned that. Let's just say you're running blue and all your shares happen to be sitting at the bottom of the deck. You're probably going to do all right. Sure, you're going to miss the opportunity of getting the stock value bumps. So maybe you really want your shares in the middle of the deck. But the points I'm talking to here, the players haven't really done much bar decide to speed the decks burnt through. And even that can be beyond the player's control. If the trade row is choked up with a bunch of shares that nobody can afford, how do you deal with that? I was thinking about the fate of the railway companies. It might be acceptable if all the shares were to appear during the game. But your ability to even value a company or predictive value and look at the number of shares is almost reduced to zero because the game can end way before the deck is depleted. I just want to make a point here, by the way, because some of our astute listeners may be screaming at the speaker right now saying, but Craig, you can sell stock, so that's how you could buy through the deck. Yeah, we will cover that point, but we'll cover that during the sell stock bit if that's okay. A consideration of having a deck where there's a game arc baked into it and you're going to discover it as the game goes on, it moves the focus away from what's going on above the table a little bit to what's going on in that deck. 
it becomes player versus environment rather than player versus player. And I'm not convinced that player versus environment shows off the best features of what Cube Rails as a genre has to offer. Yeah, I agree. I guess you could compare it a little anyway to a game like Pandemic, where your fate is probably sealed by the order of the cards. But because you're all in it together, you are actively fighting the game itself. There's excitement to that. This will deal out good luck and bad luck to the players. Players who are not in a cooperative setting, but a competitive one. Totally. It cheapens the victories and it puts salt in the wounds of loss. Yeah, we had a game where we both parred high and one of my shares popped out and that allowed you to chop my dividends in half. And there was no opportunity for retaliation. There was nothing I could do about it at all. All I could do was maybe chop Jane's dividends in half. But she had a lower part company, so the effect of that wouldn't be so significant. Meanwhile, you keep charging up to the top of the pops, clinging on to 100% dividends. And you get to punish somebody who's in a worse position than you. You get to kick the cat for your boss giving you a hard time at work. In that particular scenario, it's the exact opposite of what should have happened from a good gaming convention point of view. Agreed, yeah. Philosophically, as much as I like the idea of it, it feels like it needs some sort of action where you can flush the trade row, albeit a play a cost a player can spend some money to flush the row something just something to give the player control of a rum flop i do get the impression that this part of union station is supposed to be this light-hearted game you know maybe something closer to eerie railroad or startups except this significant factor of the deck and the luck it dishes out doesn't couple together with what the rest of the game appears to be offering. There's this kind of strategic thing where we're trying to calculate payouts and build to block each other theoretically and consider mindful sales of shares to try and damage other people's positions while still having a decent position ourselves. But you've kind of got a very frivolous control layer. In a game where you have diluting shares, having player positions where they've defined them by auction and kind of finagled par prices to get themselves set up to dictate their returns to have the players collective ability to be able to attack those companies and dilute people's positions dictated by free cards out of an end card deck is borderline ludicrous Mm -hmm. my question is why would you sell your stock you don't have any limit you can hold as much as you like at what point do you think it's a good idea to sell? My read on this is you should only sell stock after all the dividends are done because the damage of share pricing, you know, one row per tranche, is not significant versus the dilution restoration that you create by selling your stock. Yeah. The player who has their stock sold is compensated effectively for you having sold it. You've blown an action. Yeah, so we covered this earlier when I was demonstrating my amazing fractions. They will have an increased percentage percentage of the company any dividends paid out more is going to come their way and because the action is simply sell stock it's not like you can sell and then buy up particularly favorable share in its place in the same action and that share that maybe you've got an eye on which is theoretically better might not even be there by the time it gets back to you another thing is if you're selling early in the game 
then that player who's now holding a larger percentage of the company is going to be able to take another loop, is going to be able to take another loop through the stock market up through another red band and get another dividends, potentially. That's assuming that they've still got places to build to. Sure. And the earlier gaps in the stock market are slightly closer. I'm talking like one point or so closer than the later bands in the stock market. So you're chucking them down into a more dense band of payouts. At the upper end of the uh, stock market, which you might expect companies to rest at towards the end of the game, you could be thinking, well, I'll sell now. That's while it's at its peak and because the gap is higher there's barely any chance they're going to hit that dividend it depends on whether they've got many cubes left you can actually look at that and look at their position however there is that element of chance that some shares rise up in the offer deck and they're able to increase the value that way which you can just about calculate because you know how many shares of each company are in the deck but right at the end of the game the chances are you can sell for peak value and hurt the other players. However, you're not allowed to sell shares at the very end of the game in the last three dividend, dividend payouts. payouts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you kind of, okay, just before that then, there's a very narrow window where it seemingly makes sense to sell shares. And even then we have seen players sell at that high point and still give that compensation of that extra dividend. Totally. Compensation's not insubstantial either. We've seen a point where someone had a share circa value 55 and two players sold their shares in the last window to sell shares. But it was one of the companies that's more easily dilutable, like a six share company or something. So the player waited until the share hit the plus three share value spot, purchased it, got another 46 payout. That was way more than the 20 odd they actually lost in share value. Another point of compensation is towards the end of the game. You could get to the point where actually, we we talked earlier about how Union Station might not really have much of a gameplay effect, but that is further compensation if it does pay out. I'm trying to think around this right Joe and if there was no downside to selling shares then this thing just becomes a trash fest and that probably isn't the type of game Travis is looking to make here. So I do wonder if the fact that it's not an obvious decision to sell shares and that you have to be careful when you're doing it is a positive thing but for me I found it kind of dull because the window was too narrow. I like the idea of not being permanently attached to your shares. That whole you're wed to your share thing isn't as exciting to me as the whole volatility of dumping shares and devaluing other people's stock. That little dance there. Yes, you can sell shares, but you very rarely should is the vibe. And I guess that's not what I was hoping for. There was a few interesting moments in my games where there have been forced share sales because you must take an action. And if you can't buy stock and you can't lay track, then you're forced to sell your shares. And it's the players that were forced to sell shares out of the game yes so don't be caught in that trap at least that's something interesting that can happen in this game i was wondering about whether there should be a certificate limit and then that would encourage players to manage their portfolio and encourage share sales as well though i think would depend on whether you can sell and then buy immediately i think that would give some fluidity to this game that would bring the stock market alive i just think it needs reworking from the ground up it's something i really wanted to work but I don't know if it's because the sales aren't punishing enough for people who have had the shares sold underneath them. The one tranche thing, I don't know if it's the dilution fix where the shares go back up in terms of pay proportion. I suspect this is more easily fixable. Either make the down ticks more punishing or make it so the shares that you dispose out the game, actually you put them to the side and they still affect dilution of the company. 
the challenge here is I haven't thought that heavily on how you fix it, but all I can say is as it stands, it doesn't work for me. But the fact that we're discussing how we could potentially fix it, that's a huge alarm bells, right? Yeah, it is, because it means that we've got a perception that it's not right, as opposed to it's not just something we don't like. The fact that we're there trying to work out how to fix this doesn't bode particularly well. Podcasters do make the best game designers. Mm, don't say that, Joe. You'll tempt me to waste time on making something truly horrible and bad. I would be last in line to play the Craig Taylor special. That would be the name of the game as well, for record. It would be a big train with Craig down the side. Vain glorious as that sounds. It did make me think, can you actively dig through the deck? Craig holds 100% of a company. I need to get another share out of this pile. I'll buy and sell, I'll buy and sell, until I can find one of them and chop his dividends in half. Well, all the while I'm doing that, Craig's busy working his company. Getting dividends to the point where it's irrelevant anyway. Oh no, you found one of my shares. I've had three of my payouts, thanks. And I'll probably see less return on my investment than you've seen on mine. I will question that. I think it's fair to question how we're playing it if we're coming away with these kind of feelings. Because you talk about digging through the deck. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's a collective activity where, okay, Craig's running away with it. We need to dig through the deck to find his stuff. The challenge is, whilst you're digging through the deck, another player who's been somewhat left alone will win instead. I just wonder, is there room in this for alliances for me this felt very much a solitary game looking after myself as opposed to uh, the Sioux line or southern rails where the pointer or the hints that you need to be working in an alliance-minded fashion is written all over it it might be possible to collectively work together to get through that deck i suppose but the fact that the deck will bring about stock bump advantages to some players and not others the game doesn't seem to promote that kind of alliance like play Maybe the game is in laying the track, Craig. Is it? Should we talk about laying the track? I think we can tie together these points as well about map forecasting and the inversion of the classic paradigm. If you can decrypt those two statements, then you can just fast forward the next few minutes of podcast. Well done. You solved the riddle. What's the prize? Do we send out a certificate? I want to send out a certificate to the winner. The prize is they get four minutes of their life back, Joe. So that's... Ah, yeah. And time is priceless. I want to send out a certificate that says you have earned four minutes more life. Well done from the train rush. Okay, as long as you pay for the global shipping, Joe, I will sort out the certificate. Well, the first person to tweet in to say that they got it right and they won four minutes of their life, then I will post out that certificate. Fantastic. And I will make it. Right, so <laughs> on to the grist, <laughs> the meat of this sandwich, if you will. So, the map. Our listeners may remember that we came to an earlier conclusion that you want to chase the density of the towns. Norm, bring out the time machine a minute. Sorry, the what? The time machine. Bloody hell. Oh, this thing? Yeah, press that button there. No, that button. Sorry. Now press that button. Oh, this one? That one. The one labelled that. Do you think the audience will want to hear all this? We won't make them suffer, it's fine. Well, we could talk about how we're editing this out and then not edit it out, like other podcasts do. Fine, ooh, ooh, an edit, but maybe we'll leave this in for Phil. Yeah, Phil loves it when podcasts do that. Right, okay. You want to chase the density of towns? Yes, the answer is chase the density of towns. But it is dull. Has already been fixed. 
We notice that to the west of Chicago, we have a distribution of towns which give railroad companies opportunities to run routes that follow a density of towns and get a stock bump with every single rail build action a company takes. However, to get onto the most optimum points to enter that network, only two companies are going to be able to get onto each of two access points, essentially. There's two towns that are near Chicago, one Plum North and one South West. And because of the rule of two on the cubes, only two companies are going to be able to go into each of those. What happens if you go the other way, Joe? Well, if you go the other way, the other way being east of Chicago, then the closest town is two builds away. Now, is that a problem when we're thinking about those dividend payouts? It is if you're sitting there waiting for your first payout and you're having to spend two actions to do it while everyone else is rolling in cash because they managed to do it on the west side of the map on their first action. On the flip side, your builds for the rest of the game will be left unmolested. You're unlikely to be blocked if everybody else has already committed to travelling west. So the value you pick up from then onwards should be largely predictable. How exciting. So I guess you could pick up Cleveland and Pittsburgh and probably have them all to yourself. But we've also got to remember there's only 12 cubes, so you've got to be, well, I say careful. You could just look at how many cubes you've got and then put those cubes in a way that earns you the most money. There doesn't seem to be many decisions in this space here. This talks to kind of how this is a board made of two halves. An east side of the board that's poorer, but two companies are incentivized to build that way. The regular payouts aren't there, but there's less competition. But there's a west side of the board where the value bumps are going to be more regular, but there's more competition. And I just think those routes are quite set. We have seen competition. We have seen, let's say, red building into the green destination city and preventing that company from achieving their plus five bump. There has been moments of interest but in our last game we had one player who actually just sat at the beginning of the auction working out what route they're going to do with their 12 cubes and then looked at the potential par prices and was able to calculate exactly how many dividends they were getting back the routes are so fixed because you've only got 12 cubes you think initially going into this game 12 cubes that's going to be tight there's going to be lots of decisions if you're locked out of one position then ah no but it doesn't work out that way. Also about this map, some of the towns are placed in such positions, there's just no way, no way you would ever reach them because it would be a complete waste of time and potential company revenue. Yeah, won't anybody think of the branch line commuters? Now, strangely, Des Moines is probably the most contested city on the board in terms of its slap in between the blue and the black home cities. So it's a plum for being picked up as a secondary big bonus for them whereas blue is at one end of the chain and black is at the other end of the chain there's fewer competitors for those so you would think that the green company that goes towards des moines would have the lowest count of shares no no joe it has the second lowest count of shares the company that has a home station in kansas city that one that has a gimme and it's very very unlikely to be squeezed out of getting there that has the lowest count of shares just arbitrarily you know just has the easiest ride and the lowest count of shares you could call it texture i guess it's texture yeah it's texture. I think there is something to say about having imbalanced collection of railway companies, but it looks like this was an accident of design rather than intentional. It's not quite bad enough to be a dog. We're talking about four shares versus five shares. It's just a minor wrinkle to feel a tiny bit unfair or, ooh, is that a typo? 
And in theory, I like the idea of having destination cities in the game. This is a fairly common concept seen across other train games. 1870 is an example. What it does, it introduces unique incentives for particular companies to make connections in particular cities, and it influences their build direction. And what makes this design stand out, Union Station, is that all the companies actually begin in one central location and split out from there. Chicago is the origin in this game, rather than the destination, as seen in other games like 1846, Chicago Express, Ride the Rails. So the game flips this idea on its head, but there's an issue with the routes. So they're incentivized to, by design, to actually diverge rather than converge. We can see where you're going here, Joe. Well, that's part of the problem, isn't it? It means that the competition for the routes is reduced as the rail lines split in different directions from the very first action. So like any game you want to play, you know, Joe, you love it as the game goes on for the tension to reduce. And because the the hex limit is two cubes, then the competition can be reduced to absolutely zero. Because the companies that happen to be going the same way, well, it doesn't matter anyway because they could be sharing those hexes. Yep. That's another similarity between Chicago and Reading because everyone's just desperate to get out as quickly as possible. I wonder if a more alliance-minded attitude as well, where laying track for the same company as somebody else, try to sprint out of the blocks to block another company that thought they had their tempo down pat and weren't going to be able to be blocked out of any of the revenue centres. Yeah, that might be possible. I just didn't see it. So I guess this is the bit where the listeners who fast-forwarded with their time machine and got the riddle right have just tuned in. Welcome back to The Train Rush, a midnight special. Often imitated, never duplicated. Never duplicated. Never duplicated. Well done. You solved the riddle. Is this the bit where we pretend that we haven't spoken to each other in two weeks? Yeah, that's the one. That's the one. It's the one where we put the time machine in the middle. You've just saved more than four minutes of your life. So in case I sound hoarser or older or wiser or more depressed or happier, that's because some of these sections may be from the future or the past or or something. Yeah, I always look back at my past self and find myself utterly embarrassed and then we always have to jump in with our future selves or our present selves or i'm getting lost who we actually are i don't know but i do want your bike and your jacket and your uh jeans if that's all right is it your boots i forget what does arnie demand when he's in those toilets have you got a shotgun to threaten me with i merely have a handful of stock from this game is all i have to threaten you with joe a stock deck and it's evil vagaries of chance the first person to sweep in to say that they got it right and they won four minutes of their life then i will post out that certificate fantastic and i will make it right should we cover hate track because i kind of glibly said no you can't lay hate track earlier i mean a lot earlier months earlier we should probably circle back to that mm, let's do it let's get the uh, time machine out norm what does one of those sound like it probably sounds like one of these one of them I miss Dave. Who is the real voice of the show? What happens to the information? Mummy, why does Craig keep stealing my peanuts? I just don't think there's enough time in the game. Are you going to spend your action running a company in What's this? I, don't know. I think we went back too far. Norm, you twonk! This sounds like the Irish Gage episode. You were talking about tragic track. Sounded, sounded relevant. relevant. No one was ever supposed to listen to I'm this lost tape. What have you done? I've diluted your payouts. 
I don't get that many actions. What have you done? So many better things to do than hate rail in most Norm? situations. You're the vestigial limb of this whole podcast. You're an embarrassment. You probably caused some rip in the space-time continuum. Who knows? One of the hosts could be thrown into an endless void, never to be heard from again. I missed you. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. This was all your idea, Dave. I know, I know, but I didn't realise Norm would be this useless. What, what, what can we do, Joe? I, uh, I've got some solid tape. This sounds like a episode. Who's Joe? What's he talking about, Joe? Just get me and Dave back to Union Station, Norm, the one in Chicago. I'm sorry, I'm really sorry. I'm sorry, I'm really sorry. I'm sorry, I'm really sorry. So you're telling me. So you're telling me. And actually, in its prime, it had six railroad stations all in the raisin Danish Is that right? It's got Chicago on the map, it'll have to do. So you're telling me it's as important to America as Reading is to England. That's that's something else. It is, and Reading is equal in beauty, isn't it? to Chicago. Absolutely. You heard it here first. So, in terms of the track, it's pretty underwhelming. It's born from that tightness you were talking about and how the routes are a fait accompli because you've only got 12 cubes and you've got a destination city, so it kind of writes the routes on the board in invisible ink. And I guess I had a metaphor here with a bit of tightness is interesting. A lot of tightness means you're having bread sandwiches for dinner for the next 10 years, and I don't think you make a Michelin star chef out of a child raised on bread sandwiches. Mm. I prefer toast sandwiches oh do you okay yeah nice so that's two layers of bread with a crunchy toast in the middle yeah, bit of salt and pepper you can't afford that joe that creativity isn't on offer i'm afraid no no you haven't got the freedom for that you merely have bread until you're dead mm. and that rhymes so i should be a rapper the tragic track can essentially be i lay one cube here in a pointless white section that you're never going to head towards thank you very much you're now going to have to adjust and either go to one less city or not pick up a bonus or maybe not pick up your home bonus. That's the extent thereof. One of our games that was quite wounding, but it also felt quite coarse. It wasn't like you had to nuance it or finagle it. The decision was about, okay, do I have anything left to do constructive that can fire me up to another dividend on my majority holdings? No. Well, I might as well screw up one of your companies then plop out a cube somewhere. I've got this move, I can take it, rather than something that can be planned, really, because I don't think there are enough actions in this game to pull off a targeted aggressive manoeuvre. If a share of a company pops up, you have to take an action to buy that share, which moves it closer to dividends, which is inherently improving the company's position. And now you're taking another action to damage prospects in the company you've just taken time to invest in. So, I don't know, what have you achieved, really? But here's the counterplay, right? Oh, well, if you've done something really terminal to me, Joe, I'll just sell the shares then. Oh, you've guaranteed it can't get another payout now because you've laid the last two cubes or I haven't got the range to get anywhere. Guess it's time to sell, potentially, depending on how many bumps are left available, but you get the gist quite a costly manoeuvre that can leave you carrying the baby. So not only is it not particularly difficult to actually execute during the lay track action itself, I'm not sure how relevant it is. Leaving you carrying the baby is entirely relevant. Remember the pram and the steps and it just seems like meddling that could be better put to use by actively increasing the value of your own company. But didn't we have this conversation during the Irish Gage podcast that never happened? We had a whole conversation about how Irish Gage steers you generally towards constructive play because laying tragic track was just too costly when there were other decent actions you can take that can benefit you a lot more. We'd have to go back and listen to that. Someone should. 
And I know this is all backwards, talking about this right now at the end of the podcast, but I think it makes sense to do it now. Did you want to discuss that initial auction? No, 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 the auction's fine. Anybody who's played a cube rail game ever will understand how that opening auction works. There's nothing to unpack there. Let's work back around. You start off with $30. When you're the winner of a share during the auction, you are essentially setting the price of the railroad value. But in the auction, what we notice is that you probably want to position your power price so that you're able to reap dividends as soon as possible. This is so you can buy another share and dilute another company's payout and benefit from their dividends. Having your investment returned ASAP seems like a logical move. So to do so, you're probably thinking about building into a town on the west side of Chicago on your first turn, increasing your company value by two, so you want to pie a company so your token hits dividends when you do. These positions being either 12, 18, 24, and 30 on the stock market. There's four viable spots. Yes. Using that analysis. Now, what's the difference then? Let's say you win your auction with 12, or you win your auction at 30. Well, how's that going to change the game, Craig? Well, if you win it at 12 and everybody else is part high, you're taking the first action. This is significant, and we'll come back to why. Perhaps too significant. However, forgetting that consideration, if you par it at 30, nobody else is going to be able to attack your dilution, okay, or your density, if you will. Not for a while, so you're securing the fact that you will receive a 100% payout. If you par at 12, it is absolutely possible that other people will very quickly be able to afford your shares, especially if everybody else is par at 30, because their first payout will be 32. It doesn't seem like you're on the good end of the deal for starting very, very low. No. So why do it? Why would anyone do that? So if that's the thinking, does everyone par at 30? No, because the fifth company to lay track will not be able to increase their value to dividend payout on their first lay. Looking at this map, it's possible for four of the five companies to trigger a dividend payout on their first track lay, getting their money back straight away. Yes. Only two companies are going to be able to get onto each of two access points. It's the fifth company problem, and we think it's significant because it puts the player at what we consider to be a, quite a big disadvantage. In essence, it's one fewer actions than everyone else, and you're behind on your ability to buy up shares. Now, whoever is the last player to act is going to be the right of the player who happened to par the lowest. So... Does everyone adjust themselves then in the initial auction so that there is that battle then not to become the fifth player? I mean, what does the first person do? Do they set at 30? Because then everyone else could go 29, 28, 27, 26. I guess they're pushing themselves further away from that dividend payout, aren't they? This is all about getting your money back as quick as possible. In that case, you may as well dip down a complete road to set yourself to cross the next dividend band. You might be asking, maybe this creates a race to the bottom. Well, no, probably not, because losing an action isn't worth the trade-off for setting your stock value low. If you're sitting furthest from the low-powering player, you may as well suck it up and cross your fingers your slow start isn't hindered by your company shares coming out of that deck. You might get lucky. You might. I do feel like actually the way dividends are paid in this, paying out the full share value is almost unhinged. Yeah, it creates this situation where you want to par high. I lay two cubes and get $32 back versus I lay two cubes and get $14 back and I have some change left over from the opening auction, which is fine. I buy a share, maybe, but 
my effort for my company is rewarded for less because I'm starting from a lower start point. I guess in terms of the loops, there's a closer loop between the dividend payouts at the lower end of the stock market, but not significantly. And when you consider the fact that your reward for being at that lower end of the stock market is that people are more likely to buy your shares diluting your payouts, it just seems like you're being killed twice. Okay, so let's say that everyone does par high then to try and protect themselves. Someone's screwed over in terms of the the map, but what happens to the market then if everyone's setting their prices high? You're going to get your initial payout of 32, so you've earned your money back, but as you're building across the map, that value is going to rise and rise. Can you afford then to buy shares in the market if we all set high? No. The problem is with that strategy that you do to protect your dilution, it creates a very inert stock market where shares sit in there for ages and everybody just builds and builds and builds and builds. And that entire part of the game is left pretty stale for a number of cycles until people have paid out multiple times and can start to afford stuff. It seemed like the logical mathematical kind of route to follow, but the results in everyone doing that leads to a degenerate spiral, the Chicago loop and ultimately leads to a very stagnant game state, which I think is actually fine for a game to have the possibility of leading to a degenerate state. Ellen DeGeneres game state. Yeah, (laughs) if players are not playing in good faith. But I feel we were playing in good faith. And I just wonder about a game that has a pitfall like this where all the players are trying to do their best and the seemingly the only way round it to create a more dynamic game is to purposely work against this meta and play with poor motives. Yes, you have to play frivolously, there's that word again, to find the game. But if you play mathematically, for want of a better term, then it's actually quite dissatisfying. Mm. It's kind of like us both sticking newspapers on our heads and pretending to be Napoleon and running around trying to elbow and jostle each other around in the garden. It's a jolly good time, but it's not necessarily achieving a whole lot or what the design intent of that newspaper was. (laughs) And... The thing is, in our last game, we did have a player who decided to par low to work against our meta, and it did create a more dynamic game, but their success in the early to mid part of the game was simply determined by the deck. Their shares just didn't come up, so although they might have been getting lower payouts, for the lion's share of that game, their payouts were entirely theirs, so it kind of came out in the wash because our payouts were getting diluted between us, so it all kind of worked out equivalently. But if their shares had come up earlier, you and I would have been hoovering them up like Billio because they're cheap. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah, it's again, it's that story of the cards playing the players as opposed to the players playing the cards. Yeah, so the deck can obscure the floor in this game that parring high is almost certainly a dominant move. Or maybe in playtesting at least one player always parred low, creating game states that seemed more interesting. I don't know. A thing that we did see in that game instance I guess we should probably bring up was more interesting because it was a lower player count. Something that we hadn't considered before because we were playing with four or five players. In the initial auction, we're all going to par high. But now there are five companies in every instance of the game, including a three-player game. So I buy a company for 30. Craig buys a company for 30. And Dennis, he buys a company for 30. Now none of us have got any money, but there are still two other companies. Well, whoever won the 
the last auction gets to start the next auction and if it goes round and no one's bid on it then that person gets it for free at a value of five so they've just made five pounds on their zero bid we had a very strange conversation during this auction maneuvering to see who would get the free company and whether you actually wanted a second company or not it meant that i picked up an extra company which essentially was an extra five pounds as you put it because by sheer volition of the fact it's low value any effort you put into it is a low dollar per action points payoff it's just a safe five victory points at the end of the game i got for free worst case best case maybe i make it up to 20 it was an interesting math puzzle at the front but i'm not convinced it actually made for an interesting game at the back taking what we know this in a three or four player game someone is going to have their low par mongrel of a second company and actually we were thinking it's just yeah best not run it at all Hmm. until you've reached full potential in your other company at that point though you've got two things it means that you've got an action so you don't have to buy a share you don't want that is interesting and you don't have to sell a share you don't want you can build then for this other company if the situation in those other actions aren't desirable and another thing about having this company is that once all the companies have built to their maximum potential well you know now the best route and you just optimize your builds to get the most you can out of it well i'm spitballing here and this idea could just be hokum but it almost like this game needs a subsidy mechanism where if no one can win the company at all and the auctioneer gets it for free the basement value should be more than five do i want to give you a 10 value company paying out 13 and you putting nothing into it no it is interesting the rule book says in the rare case that this happens but in our meta it happens again <laughs> it would it would have yeah you'd have at least one company you know free company have a gift yeah 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 so it's interesting but what it reveals is that it feels to be some holes that we happen to fall into by just trying to do our best and i think that's all we've got to say about Union Station, the Union Station in Chicago. I wouldn't care if it was set in Narnia, frankly, if the map had more interest in terms of the places you could build and set in a landscape alive with competition for the rail company's building. Well, if it was set in Narnia, I wouldn't have been able to go through that amazing piece of cinema history with you, Craig. I guess I could have referred to the BBC TV series. Yes, please. Yeah, you could refer to the Christian pieces of C.S. Lewis, couldn't you, and how everything's a Christ metaphor. Yes. That would have been fun for our listeners. And how Edmund loves to Turkish delight. What would you like to eat best in all the world? (laughs) How wholesome. Shall we put the whip down now? Like the the white witch. And she was the one dealing out the Turkish delights of representing, you know, temptation and sin. So not wholesome at all. Oh my word. Oh my word. Yeah. Look, my conclusion is fairly short and simple for Union Station. And I actually wrote that as part of my conclusion as well. Right, oh. look. <laughs> oh, this is, this is, this is, I'll tell you what, you didn't waste any ink here, did you? Conclusion. This is my conclusion. <laughs> that was my conclusion. Signed Joe Reese, 32 and a third. Go on. <laughs> the game has several interesting elements tied together. The destination cities, the stock market, for sale of shares, potential excitement that come from the deck of random card drawers, a set of steps that look as though they could create an accelerated game state, but none of them come together into a cohesive system. 
I just feel like the game as a whole is less than the sum of its parts. And like how a film can come together with a great editor, I just feel like further development to this title could take these individual elements and forge them into a more cohesive montage of mechanisms, a more exciting game than the product we've currently been playing. You say that, but every idea we've had to fix elements of it we didn't like, and I say fix, that's awful, but modify elements we didn't like, ended up changing the character of the game entirely to the point where you're removing the foundations and now we're having to rebuild the whole thing. So it shows you what we know about game design, maybe. Why I would describe this is it's conceptually strong. However, the actual implementation did not fill me with the same excitement. It's as simple as that. Kind of like this podcast episode, really can't jam all these ideas together and expect them to function with a a beating heart. Better lay down some music to create an artificial rhythm and hope no one notices. Well, I blame Norm. Yeah, I do too. It's his first appearance on the podcast. What do you make of the episode, Norm? Brilliant. I loved it. I feel like I normally couch my views, yet every time I read feedback on the podcast, I see little sentences like, I could tell Craig didn't like that one, even for games that I liked, or certainly didn't actively dislike. Yeah, I'm afraid for this game, I don't need you guys to play Decrypto and work out what my view on it is. I was really not enamoured by this game, primarily because that offer deck was too much of a determining factor for who won or lost. It was too much in terms of the depth of the thing, so digging through it was, you know, could sometimes just be an exercise in futility if the four black shares all nestled at the bottom. And coupled to the too much deck... There seemed to be too little decision space elsewhere. Just simple things like the lack of cubes stroke lack of flexibility of options for track building. If you don't have the cubes yourself to survive and make it to your destinations or you just about do, then you don't have extra cubes to try and nobble somebody else. And I like nobbling other people. That's (laughs) not a euphemism. I guess it's the fly in your soup issue. There are things in this game that I philosophically like. There are things in this game that I find interesting but even if it's the best soup you've ever had and there's a dirty great blue bottle looking at you with its blue dead eyes you're not drinking the soup and for me that offer deck mechanism just turns me right off and i know that's quite a harsh metaphor but for me the limitations that offer deck the constraints it provides too much like handcuffs rather than buffers you're tied to the point where you can't attack the right player or you can't bump your own share value when it would make sense and some of these things you can't bump your own share value oh well that would be a constraint of interest but when you can't drag back a runaway leader just because of the vagaries of a shuffle yeah that's less interesting and 45 minutes to an hour is just too long for me to spend on a game that is largely determined by the position of cards in a big old deck. What was the bit you said earlier that we were going to use the time machine to put in at the end? Irrespective of where we land at the end of this, I still think it's a worthy addition to the Parthenon of Cube Rail games in terms of what it sets out to achieve. Did I really say that? Yeah, I think my past self got it right when I said this. It's just peanuts. Do you want to jump back on that time machine again? Together, you know, to a time before we even played this game. Sure. Hey, I hear peanuts are pretty good for travelling through hyperspace. Do you want some? Oh, yes, please, Jared. Love some. Not you, Norm. We don't have the budget for peanuts. It's not for the likes of you. We're not going to give them any peanuts. Thanks for listening. We'll be back last week with another episode of The Train Rush. Good morning. What you're going to eat ten years from now, on January 1st, 
has already been fixed. Waiter, there's a fly in my soup. Could you do something about it? What would you like to eat best in all the world? Peanuts. You've been listening to The Train Rush. If you'd like to talk to the people behind the show, you can reach us on Twitter, at The Train Rush. You can engage with us via pictures using Instagram, the underscore train underscore rush. You can contact us on Facebook, search for The Train Rush. Alternatively, you can email us, craig at thetrainrush.com. If you prefer your engagement as more of an open forum, why not come to our Board Game Geek Guild, number 3342. Thank you for listening. Newtonian determinism says that the universe is a clock, a gigantic clock that's wound up at the beginning of time, and it's been ticking ever since according to Newton's laws of motion. Hi, welcome to the train rush.